to be looking at the comparisons between different uh, Unit 1 themes like the Renaissance, Reformation, Exploration, and Absolutism and comparing them to other periods in European history and trying to make as many connections as we can. So um, what I would do if I were you is I would have out your <clears throat> review guide and um, put down as we go the different pieces of evidence and analysis in regards to comparison. So we're going to start with the Renaissance. Um, and this comparison is probably one that I make in class quite a bit. So I think it's it's one that I'm going to kind of continue with. Um, and we're going to take the Renaissance and compare it to the Age of, Ax Age of Anxiety, um, which is our uh, Depression era, mid-war mid era between World War I and World War II. So um, first of all, the significant uh, similarities, and what I did is I broke up your guys' chart to put comparison similarities on the left and comparison differences on the right. This might be easier for you guys as you're taking notes uh, to do it this way. So if you can think back to the beginning of the year, one of the things that we talked about in regards to the Renaissance was how it follows very closely the end of the Middle Ages and the anxiety and depression and um, uncertainty that the end of the Middle Ages was for the majority of Europeans. Um, the Middle Ages was a uh, relatively dark time, um, sorry for the pun, but you get this period that is seemingly insignificant in regards to progress. Um, in a lot of ways, most historians see it as a period of regression rather than progress. And so um, at the end of the Middle Ages, you have the, the plague, the Little Ice Age, um, the Hundred Years' War, and the papal schism. So it feels like the world is somewhat crumbling around you. And from that period comes a significant period of change. You have uh, humanism, start Italian humanism, which starts kind of at the end of the Middle Ages with Petrarch, um, who we see kind of as the father of Italian humanism. And moving forward, that concept, which is centered around uh, man's ability to create and man's, uh, we, we talked at the very beginning of the year between Pope Innocent and uh, Pico and, and how you have this stark contrast in regards to how they view man's ability. What, you know, Pope Innocent is sitting there going, you know, God made man to suffer and man just kind of toils through life and he's not good for anything, et cetera, et cetera. And then Pico, from a more Italian humanist perspective, takes the creation story of Genesis and says, no, man was created after the rest of the earth. He's created just below the angels and has this ability to create. And it's almost like man is endued with godlike qualities. And you have guys like Michelangelo and others kind of making very similar statements when you look at Michelangelo's uh, creation of man, there's that impartation of godlike qualities with the, the stretching out of the hand and touching um, between Adam and God. And so you have this concept where Italian humanism really is rooted in the belief that the Greco-Roman era and the ancient era was seen as the, the height of human achievement. And then you also have the Italians during this period, during the Renaissance, being able to express themselves in a way that really 
would not have happened during the Middle Ages. In most of the Middle Ages, it was deemed um, ungodly and, and showed that you were not as pious as you should be. And most people were really afraid of going to hell. They didn't really have a, a life where they were able to express themselves at a very high level. And so that Italian humanism becomes incredibly important um, in the way things are shifting. And so the other um, component of this is the art, right? The art is that expression, that evidence that shows us what Italian humanism looks like. And so you have the artists themselves like Michelangelo and Raphael and Da Vinci and, um, you know, the important guys and, uh, you know, and Donatello. And Raphael has a uh, reference where he does the School of Athens and he directly references a lot of the most important uh, movers and shakers of the earlier era. And uh, what, what we see in um, his School of Athens is his continual reference to these celebrities in history, but also how many of his contemporaries he sees as being either as important or um, in achieving at that level of the classical greats. Um, and so there's, there's that strong reference, right? And then... Um, same thing with Michelangelo, we talked about that already, and Da Vinci with his ability to kind of fuse together all the abilities of man, um, kind of into that one person who we consider the one who holds virtue, right? Well, if you fast forward to the age of anxiety, the similarities are really uh, stunning. You have um, a period of time that is incredibly chaotic. You have the end of World War One. you have a worldwide depression, you have uh, the Spanish flu, which is killing millions of people worldwide. Um, and, and it feels like the world is ending, right? It's a very apocalyptic era. And from that period comes incredible beauty and incredible expression. Um, you have your Picassos and your Dalis and your, uh, your Cubist movements, your new modern art movements, your surrealist movements, uh, Art Nouveau, um, Dadaism. All of these things stem from man's both uh, criticism of the world around them, um, but also their ability to kind of shape their own future and apply the knowledge that they're taking from new physics and, and Einstein's theory of relativity and kind of recreating that with surrealism, like you have Dali's melting clocks or uh, Picasso with the Cubist movement is kind of deconstructing traditional art styles and reconstructing it in geometric forms, um, which is almost a uh, critique of the Renaissance in a way. Remember the Renaissance, they used those geometric shapes and, and um, to, to create the, the models that they were creating. And what Picasso is doing is basically breaking those down, reshaping what it would look like and, and spitting it back onto the page or the canvas in a way that is incredibly unique. So um, anytime you see these periods of really heightened anxiety, you see from that really high levels of achievement in art. Um, you also have the same thing in, in literature. Uh, in the Renaissance period, you have guys like Castiglione and Machiavelli who are um, changing the way People looked at writing and looked at what it what it meant to be a Renaissance man or ruler. Um, and if you look at the Age of Anxiety, it also becomes a period where you have a lot of uh, writing expressions like your C.S. Lewis, um, your uh, existentialist movement thinkers are starting to become far more popular. Um, there's a, a variety of the what we call the um, 
the young, oh, I'm now starting to lose them. But th there's a period in the, the age of anxiety where um, people are starting to look for themselves. It is at times relatively depressing when you read some of the literature in that period, but it does, uh, I think, have that really heavy element of expression. So, um, and personal expression, which is very closely linked to Italian humanism. Now, if we look at differences, obviously the Renaissance is still a period that is rife with uh, scientific inaccuracy, right? Your, your pre-heliocentric um, theory, there is a transitional period where the heliocentric theory is going to be become a little bit more accepted towards the, at least in elite circles in the late 1600 or the early 1600s um, and going forward. And one of the other things that you see is there's significant difference in politics in this period. In, in the Renaissance, uh, the average person is not really able to participate in the Renaissance. The, the people that are participating are the super uber wealthy um, now, that's similar in the age of anxiety because there's so many people who are so um, destroyed by the society around them. But most, I mean, most people could still go to a theater, movie theater, something like that, and participate in a way that would have never happened in the Renaissance. The, the Renaissance was very rare to have that type of leisure time. So um, there, there is a significant difference in the standard of living. And there's a lot in between, obviously, that, that causes that. So... Um, the other thing that I would say is that in the Renaissance, while it does have um, that Italian humanist trend to it, it's still very religious. Um, most of the Italian humanism still has a very strong component of religion. Um, it, you know, even the expression of Adam and God and man, um, you have this heavy religious component. Whereas in the age of anxiety, there's some religious stuff going on, but it's mostly secular. Um, and it's being done outside of churches and, and whatnot. So that's also, a, uh, I would say, a byproduct of their time um, and a significant difference as well. Now, if we look at the Reformation and Enlightenment, um, both movements are incredibly intellectual. Um, I realize the Reformation feels like it's a, a religious movement, but from a broader perspective, the Reformation is really challenging traditional power structures. Um, the, the Catholic Church, while it is religious inherently, has such a political stronghold on Europe that when Martin Luther writes the 95 Theses, he is changing significantly both the power structure of Europe and the control that the Catholic Church had on social life, on politics, on religion, um, on economics. And so there is a significant shift. And the Enlightenment is very similar. Um, the Enlightenment, like the Reformation, is kind of started in that upper bourgeois class. If you think about the Reformation, the, the princes that eventually save Luther and save his life when he is going to be brought on trial for heresy, they're making a pol political decision to do that. Um, while there are, are certain people that may absolutely believe Luther and, and are also Protestants, many of them are making economic and political decisions um, in regards to why they would save him or, or become Protestant, mostly because it removes the Catholic Church from um, getting money from their region, and it also gives them more lo uh, control locally so that they're able to make political decisions without the uh, 
blessing of the Catholic Church. Whereas in the Enlightenment, you also have that upper class, that upper middle class, the bourgeois, sitting in these salons and cafes, and they're discussing what it may, what it means to express liberalism and express uh, a belief in the individual. And if you look at the Reformation, that's really what's happening: is there's a shift between this traditional power structure of God, church, man, to kind of removing the church as a necessary intermediary between the two. And so now you have this relationship between God and man. And so you've separated the church as a necessary intermediary. And what that does is also very similar to what the Enlightenment does with its power structure and political structure in no longer believing that God is giving a king power to rule over man. Now it's should there just be a government that rules over me but is directly influenced by me? So that more democratic, liberal government is also very similar to the way that the Reformation expressed itself um, politically. So I would say there's a strong similarity between the two. Um, The Enlightenment is also because it's so heavily focused on the individual, just like the Reformation is. Um, I think that's a similarity that you can definitely go with. Um, And you can look at how there's a significant... Uh, period of war that follows both periods. Um, The Thirty Years' War, as well as um, the French Civil Wars and whatnot, come from that religious uh, exchange in the Reformation. In the Enlightenment, you have the American Revolution, you have the French Revolution, um, you have a number of uh, revolts in many of the colonies looking for that liberal and um, those liberal revolutions that are going to give people more rights. Um, obviously that that period only really works in the uh, in America and in France it's kind of a disaster but over time um, they're moving in a certain direction that that is going to be successful over time and I think that's similar to the Reformation as well Um, Lutherans have a pretty good go of it early on and then other groups like the Calvinists and whatnot will get more and more rights as time goes on as far as differences are, are concerned um, clearly the Reformation and Enlightenment are really trying to do different things. Um, while they have a lot of the same outcomes, uh, they, they're, they're trying, one of them is clearly trying to change, uh, the religious landscape of Europe. The other one is trying to change the political landscape. The other thing is that they're very localized, um, so the the difference with the Reformation is while it spreads out and turns into a bunch of other Protestant groups like the Calvinists and the, the Lutherans and the Church of England, it, it kind of spreads organically all over the place. The Enlightenment is going to be kind of a, a case study with France, where, where France has that expression. Um, obviously, England is uh, dealing with some Enlightenment thought as well, but their system is more going to just change slowly over time. Whereas the French system tries to change almost immediately, very quickly to overnight, to the point where they actually try to get rid of religion completely. They go to that um, calendar that's completely different, the Republican calendar, uh, where they have 10-day work weeks and they have um, everything is nice and neat in 10 days and and, uh, the months are changed and they they make the months into um, the names of different seasons and whatnot. And so you have a a system that's actually just trying to mechanize society. Um, And while it has a lot of that underpinning of the scientific revolution, they're trying to get rid of anything that's considered irrational. So they're going to reject a lot of the religious movement 
of um, that the Reformation was starting and, and really has key components of. So I think there's significant differences there. Um, does anyone have any questions on the first two before I do exploration and imperialism? You can write them in the chat or you can hop back on online here if you want. As far as exploration and imperialism, um, th this particular prompt, or not prompt, but concept, I think has a lot of the similarities in regards to the way Europe and the world are going to um, interact. So clearly the age of exploration, there's this belief in Europe that mostly race was kind of dictated by religion. Um, in that period, they believed that, that your race was like in your blood uh, and it was part of who you were. So you were either Catholic, um, Jewish or, or Muslim, it, but it, it, obviously they're uh, or heathen it, and your worldview didn't really allow you to see the world any any other way. And so if you were a heathen uh, or a Muslim or a Jew and uh, you're a traditional European going and exploring other places, you don't see those other groups as on an equal plane as you. And so that becomes kind of their uh, inherent racism in Europe in the period. Now, once you see that expansion to other places, you see obviously resources are going to be exchanged like the Colombian Exchange. Um, but you also see that expression of religious um, movements like the Catholics and the Jesuits who are going to the New World and creating missionary, uh, missions and things like that. And I think that that period, as we see today with places like Portugal um, and or like Portugal and Spain that went over to Brazil and uh, the rest of the Latin American uh, portion of the New World, you see those languages that are still part of their culture today really stems from a lot of that early missionary work during the period of exploration. Um, now, imperialism has its own version of that racism when you look at uh, white man's burden, social Darwinism and whatnot. And it's, it's different in that science has changed, but it becomes this kind of reinforcing of scientific racism in a way. Um, and so that imperialism has uh, components of it where they see these other civilizations as needing the help of Europeans to become more civilized. And so, um, you know, it, I, I know in class I've talked about this as well, but when we look at periods of time like imperialism and uh, like that, where you have this expression of civilization and what they would consider um, exporting um, the light of the world, like Alexander the Great thought he was doing way back in the day. Um, it's not all that different than we talk when we talk about disaster politics or disaster relief and things like that. You know, countries generally think they're doing the right thing whenever they're going to help somebody else. But obviously, when you treat someone like they're not on an even plane as you and you treat it as, oh, we're the group who's in a better situation than you. So here's a bunch of stuff. What ends up happening is um, while it could be good natured and actually from a good heart, it comes out as in the end as being an exportation of culture um, and will have a heavy impact on that system, society or um, country for a long period of time. So there's uh, not just this moment where, OK, 
we're doing this because we're racist. Most people weren't doing that. It was most people were doing it out of heart of compassion. But then they realized later, many of us realized later after we studied a lot of this stuff, is that it becomes really, um, there's really strong racist underpinnings to those things. So exploration and imperialism have that real strong link, right? Now, as far as the difference, um, one of them is incredibly mercantilist. And, and the exploration period is really about creating these trade networks that will allow you to accumulate natural resources. Um, that's That type of economy is far more localized in Europe um, with the addition of new goods and, and um, services from the New World. And the Colombian exchange itself does create a lot of these new food staples, which will eventually uh, key in the, the agricultural revolution um, very shortly. So there, there is going to be that, but then you get to the age of imperialism, and like Lenin called it, it's kind of the last stage of capitalism. So you have an exportation of what Lenin would consider um, governments or specifically businesses exploiting their workers. Um, and so instead of exploiting people in Europe now, a lot of times we're exploiting, Europeans are exploiting people other places. And at least in the, the concept of most communists, that's kind of how things are happening in this period. So um, the other thing that is happening is you're starting to see the beginnings of globalization. So globalization is happening through that imperialism. Um, economies are becoming far more interconnected. But remember that before World War I and before World War II, the world is not the global world it's going to be after World War II. Um, once World War II happens and you have the, the world shift into the bipolar world of the United States versus Russia, it becomes far simpler and globalization actually becomes easier because everything that is part of the USSR or communist kind of becomes part of this giant trade network and everything that is part of the United States or democratic or free, not communist, becomes part of that own that global network. And so um, those are significantly different than the age of exploration that was based on mercantilism. Um, so I would say that there's a number of similarities, but the differences really have to key in based on economics. Um, the other thing that you see in both periods is this concept of exoticism, um, which is going to heavily influence the arts. So in the age of exploration, uh, I, I've shown you this before when you guys saw the, the piece by Titian of the, the lady and her slave who has like a pearl earring and she's dressed him up all nice and whatnot. And that's kind of her way of expressing her desire to be exotic or be in tune with what was exotic in that period. Um, I have to look up the piece. It's in my um, folder of stuff. But um, then you also see in the age of imperialism, a lot of art is going to also be influenced by people going and taking in trips to uh, the Polynesian islands and um, some art is going to be influenced by Africa and some positively, some negatively, some, you know, the heart of darkness, which was written during that period is also kind of a real dark look at what is going on in that period. So I would say um, art is going to be another similarity where both periods have that heavy e emphasis on exoticism um, and the expression that comes from that. Um, okay, the last 
little thing that we want to compare is going to be absolutism and fascism. Um, both periods are going to follow incredible times of insecurity. So uh, absolutism follows the age of reformation. England is going away from the Catholic Church. France is now a relatively divided country. Um, you have Germany or the Holy Roman Empire, which is significantly divided as well. Um, princes can choose between, because of the Peace of Augsburg, can choose between uh, Lutheran or Catholic. And um, then you have only a couple of uh, groups that are still together, like the Italians, but then the Italians are all divided based on city-states and whatnot. So it's pretty chaotic in that period. Um, the age of absolutism, like Louis XIV expresses, is a way to shift people's um, insecurities and put them into one singular ruler. So um, like Louis called himself, you know, one king, one law, one faith. He was the expression of the state. And that's important for us because that's very similar to fascism. The only thing you do when you look at fascism is you change where the leader, while he is important, is not really how you teach fascism. You teach fascism with people need to buy into becoming a, a component of the state. And the state is going to be strong. So the, if you boil down fascism into one word, it's, it's all about strength. And if you're able to express that strength within individuals and then collectively be a strong group of people um, that really tries to remove some of their own uh, wants and needs and do things for the state, that becomes kind of that fascist moniker. Now, the problem, of course, is that both systems, absolutism and fascism, rely heavily on scare tactics, on um, people being able to come in and tell you, you're not allowed to do this, you have to do this. So it's an incredibly authoritarian system. Um, now, there is a significant difference when it comes to religion. Um, the absolutist phase was very one religion based. That was part of the way that they built culture. Um, you look at Louis XIV, and when he gets rid of the Edict of Nantes and replaces it with the Edict of Fontainebleau, he will essentially decide that religious difference is no longer tolerable. So they go from a period of relative tolerance to a period of, no, we're not going to tolerate that at all. Um, now, fascism does have relationships with religion, but it's not going to keep that as the strong that we need to focus on this. Instead, um, it has a heavy component of nationalism and it tries to kind of almost romanticize war as being the most important thing and it substitutes war um, as the most important human expression uh, and, and strength. So it is a bit different in that respect, uh, but they both have really strong leaders. Um, you look at Louis XIV or Peter the Great and you compare them to Hitler or Mussolini or even Franco, and many of the, the things that they do, like Peter the Great is forcing his nobles to build palaces in St. Petersburg. He's coming and cutting their beards and doing things to kind of make them feel Russian um, and, and modern. And I would say that Hitler has a lot of those same tendencies. Uh, he, he does a lot of those types of um, laws and whatnot to kind of force compliance um, if you just look at the Hitler Youth, it, it's clearly promoted heavily, but um, the amount of young people that were actually a part of the Hitler Youth is somewhat staggering. Um, it's probably 70% or so of the population of young people were part of the Hitler Youth. And I think that that's probably uh, one of the reasons why people um, see that 
that combination, that authoritarian um, type of rulership, which is, I would argue, is very similar to absolutism for sure. So, um, you know, when we look at absolutism, absolutism and fascism, the biggest similarities have to do with um, the way that they come in. Obviously, the, the fascists come in right after World War I, the age of depression, uh, this anxiety, new physics. People are confused. They're depressed. They don't really know what to do. So they, they latch on to something that is strong, that feels secure. Um, and I would say absolutism is really similar um, in that respect. And then you obviously have more of the differences um, for a variety of reasons. Obviously, you're comparing two completely different worldviews, even though we're looking at Europe um, you're looking at Europe in 1650 versus Europe in 1920 or 1930. And that's obviously a very different place um, when we look at, at that in, a, in the grand scheme of things. So um, that is it for uh, our four comparisons. I'm going to stop this here and then ask you guys if you have any questions.